the Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. This podcast is supported by VIPLA, Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association. Welcome to the Planning Exchange. I'm Jess Noonan and always I'm joined by Peter Jewell. Great to hear your voice again, Jess. You too. Today we're talking with Deb Ganderton and James Reid from the Greater Metropolitan Cemeteries Trust, also known as GMCT for short. GMCT is a self-funding, not-for-profit organisation that runs 19 cemeteries and memorial parks and three crematoria across Melbourne. It's also responsible for two greenfield sites to be developed on Melbourne's urban fringe. Welcome to the show, Deb and James. Thank you, Jess. Thanks, Jess. Now, would you mind just giving our listeners a brief introduction um, of your background and experience and, I guess, how you've um, ended up at GMCT? Thank you, Jess. Well, there was an ad in the paper that didn't mention it was a cemetery and it was as Director of Service and Engagement. So I've got a background in in corporate um, community engagement and I've been at local government for 17 years. So it kind of sounded interesting. I then went to the agency and found out it was a cemetery and thought, oh, that's pretty interesting. Um, So I was there as Director of Engagement and service for um, 18 months and then the opportunity to apply for the CEO role. So it was um, a a sector that I knew nothing about, but that I'm absolutely uh, committed to um, for the future because I find it fascinating. Maybe James, what attracted you? Well, I first heard about the sector when I was working at Yarra Rangers and I was introduced to the Lilydale Cemetery and their proposers proposals for a master plan there and it opened my eyes to the potential of the sector and and issues I've never thought about before around open space and memorialization and history and I must admit I've always been a bit of a cemetery wanderer when I go to the country I'll wander through the cemetery to find out who's who and learn a bit about the place so when the opportunity to arrive arose to join the GMC I I leapt at it because I come from an urban planning background (laughs) <laughs> and can you explain a little bit about the GMCT, what it stands for? And I also understand there's 18 cemeteries existing and two planned. And what's the role of the trust and, and who owns it, essentially? Peter, yeah, great question. Not much is known about cemeteries. So we, it's the Greater Metropolitan Cemeteries Trust. It is a Class A cemetery trust. So what happened 12 years ago was um, after an IBAC investigation of people taking backhands and et cetera, et cetera, there were amalgamations. So there are five Class A cemetery trusts in Victoria, two in Metropolitan Melbourne. The two in Metropolitan Melbourne is Greater Metropolitan Cemeteries Trust, and we do East, North and West and Southern um, Cemeteries Trust and they are the south. So they've got the beautiful Springvale and the beautiful Melbourne Cemetery. Um, GMCT have got Faulkner, Lilydale, Altona, Keilor. Um, plus, so there are, there are 19 um, active cemeteries and two greenfield sites. There are 475 Class B cemeteries that's like the little Eltham Cemetery and and uh, all the other anything that's not 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 in our catchment. So yeah, so we came about because we felt we the, the government felt they needed a bit of oversight, and so that was happening twelve years ago. What was the other part of the question, Peter? Uh, how it operates and who owns it. Lovely, well done. We are a self-funded, not-for-profit organisation responsible to the Department of Health. Our board is constituted by government ministerial appointments. We report annually to the um, Minister for Health. So it is interesting. We also contribute to the government, to the cemetery sector, by each Class A cemetery takes, uh, provides, contributes 3% of our revenue into the government to help look after the class Bs. To give you an idea of size, 
60, our, our revenue is $60 million a year. So some might say we are in the business of real estate as well as fulfilling our purpose um, of disposal of the dead. Very interesting. It's um, there's a lot of a lot in there, I guess, that people probably just don't think about. And I think that's what you were alluding to earlier that it's a very very interesting organisation and interesting setup when you actually get into the nitty gritty of um of the operations. So um, Deb, one of the other things we were interested in exploring is um the history of how land was first set aside and then um to operate um based presumably on the British experience. So how how have cemeteries become an integral component of the way cities and towns are planned? Yeah, I'm going to throw to James on this one, but it does seem to me that cemeteries are, and, and indeed death is, is just simply not discussed um, in, in Western societies, but you know certainly not in, in, in Australia and Victoria. So um, the planning for cemeteries is simply not done at a state level. Um, so but back to the history, we might circle back to that a bit later on, but James, you and I were discussing this um, earlier in preparation for this. What did you discover about the genesis of, of, our, of our cemeteries? Well, it's really interesting that the, the cemetery movement, if you want to call it that, really started to evolve around the same time as the, the urban planning and the landscape architecture movements, which is probably no coincidence. So traditionally, cemeteries or graveyards were religious. In, in churchyards. And with the Industrial Re Revolution, this became untenable because population was growing so fast, they weren't well managed. So there was all sorts of amenity and, and even public health issues arising from them. So there was, there was a, a bit of a movement for garden cemeteries coming out of the late 17th century as a bit of the Renaissance. But the, the practical reality of needing safe and attractive places to, to bury the dead really started to gather some momentum in the early 19th century, uh, particularly in the UK, France, and, and the USA. And there was a big push for large cemeteries outside the city limits in places like London and Manchester and Liverpool, which coincided with about the same time that Melbourne was being developed in the 1830s. So Melbourne General Cemetery was established about 17 years after the, the city itself. So it just happened to be that around the time that Melbourne was being developed, um, this cemetery movement was emerging to provide non-denominational municipal type cemeteries. And, and um, there's many changes, uh, Deb and James, since uh, uh, you know the traditional concept of a cemetery, which we're probably we're all familiar with. But the the cemetery sector now, in terms of disposing of bodies, it's much more dynamic. Uh, there's lots of choices. There's the traditional headstone. There's the green burial uh, with GPS tracking. There's bio um, capsules, all sorts of things. So it's it's a dynamic sector. Agree? <laughs> um, it's a slow dynamic. It is being forced upon us and we must absolutely respond. So to look at cemeteries that have been in place for a hundred years, GMCT have been thought of doing infill development, if you will, which is why the opportunity, and I know we're going to talk about Harkness, our new development at Melton Way in a moment, but um, it's kind of infill. Now, disposal of the dead. So if you're looking at um, the changes in preferences uh, with regard to burial practice and, and cremations, Cremations is certainly on the rise. But then the idea of acclimation, the idea of, um, of, of com human composting, et cetera, et cetera, is absolutely, and, and green burials, is absolutely, um, will come into effect with generational change and perhaps the move towards a, a more, more, more atheist, a, a, whatever the word is, atheists, um, atheism. So it, it is a challenge for us to get ahead of the curve in our master planning to kind of just look at what do we provide. Obviously, we make, there's, a, there's a, an economic thing here, two matters on that. One, 
monumentalization. So you go along to a couple of our older, perhaps more Mediterranean-based um, cemeteries, and it's just concrete, concrete, concrete. You go out to Lilydale Memorial Park, and it's beautiful in the hills of the Yarra Valley lawn. The idea of how much maintenance, the idea of our contribution to open space and, and carbon is all stuff that we need to to really look at. So, yeah, James, do you have a comment? Can I just jump in there quickly yeah. um, just for some context for our listeners? What is the What are the current numbers or percentages around um, burials versus cremation and other forms of um, disposal? Yep, 60% burial, 40% cremation. In our region, particularly around Faulkner, we've got a very high um, ethnic and, and, and indeed Muslim um, cohort. It's about 50-50. Okay, that's but, a lot but, higher but, than I expected it to be in terms of burial. I know, I know. I, I think we will see, well, and that, of course, you know, are we going to run out of land? Is, 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 it, is it good use of land? How do you honour cultural practices? Big dilemma needs to be faced and is currently not being faced. And in turning to um, new cemeteries, and you mentioned Harkness, and it's in Melton. Could you describe the project? And also for our listeners outside of Victoria, just describe the sort of geographical location of Melton. I'm going to hand over to you, James. You were very excited about this project you're leading. Indeed, this is one of the projects that attracted me to the role. The Harkness Cemetery is on the very outskirts of the Western Growth Corridor of Melbourne. So Harkness is directly to the north of the town of Melton, which is rapidly becoming part of the metropolitan area of Melbourne. And it, it's a very large site at the moment. It's a very much a greenfield site. So I think there's about only about 160 trees. So it's very much a paddock uh, on the edge of an urban area, suburban area to the south and a planned suburban area to the east. Um, so it's got lots of potential, but lots of challenges because obviously we need to think about not only all of those matters that we've talked about around predicting future preferences for perhaps the, the next 70 years of supply, but also very, very basic questions like infrastructure, um, access, interfaces with residential areas, and a broadening of the expectations of the community about what a, a cemetery might be. We've got a very live discussion about you know, what role would this place play, play this place play in terms of open space, for example, as, as the space evolves over that 70 to perhaps to 100 years. And what is it about this cemetery um, which is different to others? Is it, is it the way that it's being planned? Is it, is it the way that it's incorporating open space? Um, can you go into that a little bit, James? Look, I think notably it's, it's the largest cemetery that's been planned possibly for 100 years. You know, Springvale commenced in the early 1900s, as did Faulkner. Now, there's been other cemeteries since, but this is the, the largest one of, of, of this scale uh, in, in recent times. So it means we can approach it with a 21st century um, consideration of, of our societal changes, our societal mix, uh, and to think more broadly about what this space needs to do in terms of providing um, open space, perhaps um, addressing climate change, dealing with um, how we might manage vegetation with, with a changing climate, for example. Um, can we generate energy on the site? All those sort of exciting opportunities we need to think about. I guess we've got a blank canvas and, and at this very early stage in the project, we're thinking as broadly as we can about the potential that this site might have, given it's not only it's long, um, the, 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 the long supply it will provide, but the fact that we've also got a plan for this in perpetuity, it'll be there for a very long time. I'm also interested to know a little bit more about engagement and what kind of engagement is required when planning a cemetery. Um, is that something that you've done already on Harkness or is it something that's coming up? And, and if you are, how, how do you do it? How do you approach it? Well, this is just about, it is commencing and it, it is absolutely multifaceted. So uh, we will be engaging with uh, the indigenous community, of course, uh, with all of our stakeholders, um, 
stonemasons, funeral directors, with the Department of Health, Melton City Council, uh, DELP, VPA, all, all of those familiar stakeholders uh, that are involved in uh, land planning. But of course, the, the community, the, the current and the, and the future communities are critical as well. So we'll not only be talking to religious groups about their needs into the future, but some of the emerging cultural groups around um, throughout the Western region, in fact, uh, about what their needs might be in the future. And, and, and that'll presumably, involve... presumably those needs are incredibly diverse, um, particularly out the West at the moment. I know, um, you know the population demographics sound that way, uh, you know, mind-blowing in terms of the level of diversity and the level of population change. So I imagine there's a very extensive consultation process that's required. That's right. And, that, and that's what's so exciting about the project, really. Yeah. I, I made the comment just yesterday that we also need to plan for the unknown unknowns in terms of community engagement. You know, had you asked me or suggested to me in, in even the year 2000 that we would have a substantial Sudanese community in Melbourne, I would never have predicted that. So we can't predict who will be living in this region in 70 years time. So we need to somehow build contingency in the, into the design to allow for evolution of the, the park and the offer over time. What a fantastic opportunity, Deb and James, to to create a space that is going to be used by tens and tens of thousands of people over hundreds of years. And you've got an open canvas and um, you've got to, as you say, James, build in that flexibility. How, how big is Harkness? I'm sorry if I, you mentioned that. I can answer that. Four times the size of the Botanic Gardens in Melbourne. So you can give me hectares, James. We also had the opportunity to brief the administrators at Wyndham City Council, and we were able to share with them the development that we're doing at, um, at Melton, at Harkness. And we were able to say the lessons that we learn from this wonderful development at Harkness, we will be able to play back to you when we develop our Plenty Valley site. The Plenty Valley site is next door to the Growling Frog um, golf course for those golfers in the audience. So uh, the learnings for us to create a parkland, open space and cemetery is, is really exciting for all involved and for our communities. A little bit of a question um, off notice here, but I'm not sure if this is for um, Deb or for James, but is there, I mean, the, the way that cemeteries are planned currently, it seems like it's, it's, it's sort of done on a regional basis. Is there any merit in looking at cemeteries more locally so that, um, you know, the local community can be um, buried or laid to rest in whatever form that might be within their local community as opposed to um, having to go out to a, a more regional-based um, um, location? Does that make sense? I think we can both answer that. One, Show me the land, Jess. Yeah, okay. So the biggest issue there is land supply. Of course it is. Yeah. And and for us, our current thinking is 50 hectares is the minimum land lot that we would look at to make it viable. Okay, cool. If I can add to that, I think we are mindful of that issue and we do you know, look out for opportunities. For example, the Trust has recently bought some land to expand the Emerald Cemetery, yeah. but you know, we're com competing with land developers out there and we know what that means in terms of, of the, the cost of land and mm -hmm. our capacity to uh, compete with um, bulk developers in terms of what they're trying to achieve within the urban growth boundary. So it is very challenging. We thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website. This podcast is supported by our wonderful friends at One Mile Grid. One Mile Grid is a boutique consulting firm which offers traffic and transport engineering, transport planning and waste management services. You can find out more by visiting their website at www.onemilegrid.com.au. And can we talk a little bit about renewable tenure, which is a, a you know a concept that not many people would would think about? Um, it, it it creates the opportunity to provide ongoing cemetery capacity. Can can, can you talk about and renewable tenure is uncommon in Australia, and, and the most the majority of burial plots are sold in 
perpetuity, many a grave remains untouched forever. Is, is this a discussion? I think you were alluding to this a bit earlier, Deb. Well, I'll throw that over to you too about that whole renewable tenure concept. Thank you. Um, it's, it's quite well developed across Australia, except for Victoria. So, so we are, so, so it's limited tenure, renewable tenure. We have that for our um, cremated remains, um, for our um, non-burials, but all grave stock is to be held in perpetuity. So questions of affordability, et cetera, et cetera. So currently the, 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 we are not allowed to, to offer that. I think it needs to be addressed. I think that families could then have, will then and do have the opportunity to renew the tenure, but just at the moment, it is all um, vested in that they must be kept forever. So the natural flow on from that is, uh, when are you going to run out of land? I, I suppose, Deb, that, that runs into the question of a grave is often thought of as a final resting place. Mm -hmm. And, and um, the, it's an important question of whether the bereaved you know, seek comfort in memorialising the deceased in perpetuity, considering at most grave visitations, I, I came across this figure often cease about 40 to 50 years after someone's mm. died. Mm. Is, is that sort of the experience that your research shows? And, and does that suggest that the significance of the grave varies over time? Oh, look, absolutely, absolutely. So for me, I remember Melbourne University, we work very closely with um, in, in looking at a research program called Future Symmetry. And one of the examples from Japan was that your ashes were put into helium balloons, if you will, and they are up in the sky and you go along to a, um, to a, 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 a cemetery and you key in your pin number and the balloon and and the and, and the ashes and, and the plaque is sent down to you and you pay homage and you pay your respects and then and then the balloon goes up. Should there be a 10-year say um, that the balloon hasn't been called for, then the balloon is released into the atmosphere. And I thought, what a beautiful way to actually look at if it is still relevant for your family and your ancestors. But what happens in in um, when you, you do do the limited tenure, the, 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 is you actually dig up the remains and you put them into an ossuary, you put them into um, a, a, a plaque and, and a, look, hole in the wall, if you will. So you can still pay your respects. So you're still monumentalising. You are simply then returning the grave stock to the community. So I... I, I I think it's inevitable. It's just would it be a very brave government to do it. Maybe a way forward would be to change the legislation with it coming into effect three terms ahead so that you're not, <laughs> not responsible, you know. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. a very, very tricky one. I can't imagine how difficult um, those conversations must be with government. But I think it should be faced. I think it is a wicked problem. And I, and I think that Incredibly. there is an answer. Mm. I think if we were able to go and, 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 and seek community sentiment, I think that that whole sustainability and, and inevitability of running out of land, I have great confidence in the, in the common sense of our community. I think if the government will be able to find confidence that it's not decibel democracy, that you're not getting the outrage groups that listen to rather than the, the, the general population. I think we should open the betting. Yeah, I completely agree. I think um, particularly, you know, the new generations coming through, I think they'll be far more open-minded to um, those alternative uh, solutions as well. Jess, what about tradition? Come on. James, you, you've been involved in many, many planning um, consultation processes of difficult subjects. Any thoughts on 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 how how this could be approached? Oh well, I, I think the the word that Deb used, sustainability, is the key to this. Uh, we keep consuming land, and 
you know, for, for, for what purpose? We, we need to look at this as a question of sustainability and, and efficient use of land. And, and I think we can have the conversation. It could be grandfathered. So it could be something that could commence in 30 years time, give everyone the, the a generation's time before this kicks in. And, and we can plan ahead for that. As I said, we're planning for 70 to 100 years for Harkness. So that's you know, half, half the, the, the time frame I'm talking about. So I think, I think other, we need to talk about it in terms of sustainability, absolutely. Yeah, and I think the other part of the conversation um, is also about um, repurposing these places to be multi-purpose mm. so that they can be recreational areas um, or meditative gardens or those sorts of things because I think most people can accept that um, cemeteries um, or graveyards you know, they, they, they really do only serve a single purpose currently. But if we can transition them to be these multi-purpose spaces, then surely the community will see that as positive because they're getting more open space um, potentially or more recreation areas. Any thoughts? Yeah, I really love that, Jess. And I think the opportunity for us to green our cemeteries, so the ones that have gone in perpetuity, the ones that are, are, are full, um, and I think if we can just do massive plantings, uh, given that you know we could, um, to actually provide that 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 greening contribution, uh, like for Faulkner, we are the largest provider of open space in the in 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 the in the city. So, at no cost to the community. So you're kind of just going, Moreland, and we get along famously with 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 the Moreland Council. Cemeteries do play an, a really wonderful, wonderful role in this. The interesting conversation we have with our trust is, I need clear direction. Am I looking at maximum yield for our cemeteries in the build? Or do I absolutely put in the most graves that I can? Or am I looking at and what is acceptable to you for making it a park, making it really an open space that is being able to be activated for, um, for, for, for community use. And, and, and they are very, very open to um, us serving both purposes. So that gives me great heart. Then we go, do we allow it to be bushland rather than, and perhaps not allow concrete? Do we have playgrounds, et cetera, et cetera? That then gives rise to, well, why, why do you need to be a cemetery? So at Harkness, we back onto the Gilgai Forest. Why can't we just do cremated remains in the forest? So as the future is, it's all very, very interesting. And of course, those objectives aren't mutually exclusive. In, in terms yeah. of that, the role of the cemetery in, in the grieving process, to have a beautiful environment surrounded by gorgeous trees, to put you in nature surely has to play an important role. In, in terms of that important process that we we support, I know where going I'd rather spend open, my time. <laughs> going back to the question we raised before about open space, our cemeteries have come to life during COVID, because I think people have <laughs> discovered them as a as a really beautiful, peaceful, contemplative space to to deal with what we're dealing with at the moment. It, it's I, I saw a family picnicking in the little Northcote Cemetery a couple of weeks back. James, that's my experience. I was uh, at the St Kilda Cemetery visiting the graves of uh, some of my forebearers and the number of walkers, um, and that's a that's a very um, I think that's fully developed, but it's a very old school cemetery if I can call it that. But I, I, I noticed how many people were walking through, just as you said, James. And one of the things is um, you know making them more accessible. And I know for heritage reasons, a lot of cemeteries have high walls around them but I just wonder if they're they're sort of like a people might be too scared to actually go in there I'm not talking about just that they don't think it's right that they walk through there is there some ways that you can encourage that do you think to, to you know for people to come in we, we've just built a, a brand new precinct in in the northern metropolitan cemetery uh, to the north of Faulkner I've been just inspecting some of the new landscaping works through there. There's a beautiful lake system, waterways, and there's already families that are walking through those areas, enjoying the walkways, enjoying the wildlife, in fact. Um, so I think that it's already happening. 
But I also take your point, Peter, about the very high fences and we lock them up at night. Why? So I can understand locking them up at night, but and, and maybe for heritage reasons, Deb, that the walls have probably got heritage significance, but I, I, I just it's it's part of the community. You, know, you mentioned people don't like to think about death or but that there's great prospects of, as you say, opening them up, if you like. So, Pete, one of the things I know that you're really um, passionate about is family history. So um, a question I'd be interested in exploring with Deb and James is how we preserve heritage and history of graves um, when families are no longer involved. How do we, how do we ensure that people can um, do that family research in future and, and know where their um, relatives are, have been laid? There's such rich databases around our cemeteries now so that the, the digital combines well with the, the physical. I've, I've in fact discovered ancestors up in Yakandanda that I didn't actually know had come, come to the country until I searched databases and then went out to Yakandanda and found their graves. So um, it was an absolute delight to use those digital resources and then to go and physically experience the resting place of some of my ancestors. So if I may, the issue, there's a great deal of, of, of interest in, in ancestry and our most visited um, page on our website is, is you know, there's, is tracking down, down your family and, and your ancestors. Because you inherit, we inherited, as all, all cemeteries did, inherited records of varying quality, the data quality is not good. So I would very much like the government to record centrally as they do with land titles, the rights of interment into a place like the titles office. Now, what that would mean is that that would be, that would pass down as part of the probate, because I'm sure there are many, many graves that are owned by families that the families do not know. And then you would go like generation one, two, how would you prove, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's another thing to be addressed. So the quality of, of, of our records, and if we can't rectify, um, then perhaps we can, from this day forward, start for, 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 for more accuracy. But there's certainly a huge amount of interest with um, ancestry.com, et cetera, et cetera, and other cemeteries and all, and all the local historical societies. So are we equipped to look at and provide valuable information about the um, about the, the the genealogy and secondly are there graves and grave stock that lay empty for the want of an owner that we could turn and return so that that's kind of, oh we, sorry we do have um, a, a tenure program where if it hasn't been used for 25 years we can go out and advertise and 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 then bring it back to market that's fraught with problems of course but uh, we, we, we have got a program like that. Uh, Deb, I can speak from first-hand experience. I was up at the Creswick Cemetery yesterday looking at um, some of the markers of my forebearers and I tracked down the first jewel to die in Victoria and the, the poor devil had an unmarked grave. So we're, the family's organising a plaque to go there. Wow. Um, and and there's I noticed that uh, there's a number of plaques of people discovering you know, their forebearers and putting plaques down or something like that. Mm. But but there's also a find a grave website. I'll tell our listeners, so you can. There's some there's some crazy good resources there, James. I don't know if you had the same experience. Oh yes, there's all sorts of wonderful resources online. I've I've certainly used Ancestry. I've I've used Find a Grave. You you, you raise an interesting point, and this is one that I think is so important um, in relation to our newer communities that that the role of the cemetery can provide a real connection to place. You know, we've got some first, second generation immigrant families in the Western suburbs who will find a connection to this place and to this land through, through Harkness because their people will be laid there. And that, to me, that's a really important and meaningful part of what we do. What about burials on private um, land? Are they lawful? Because I know um, in, in the past there's been probably quite a few that have taken place, particularly on, um, you know, large farmlands and things like that. Yeah, no. 
<laughs> no, no, no. You're not allowed to. Okay. Can't put down the bottom of your garden. No. <laughs> Okay, we'll, we'll move on to the next one. Jess, um, can we talk about the architecture of grief? Um, it, it, it's a very um, difficult time, of course, for families and, and partners and things. How is that, how is that changing um, with that, the buildings that are around the cemetery, the places people can go to commemorate? How, how is that moving along, that architecture of grief? I... That, that's a beautiful question. Peter, we believe that we can, through design, allow grieving families to take the journey. For instance, coming up to the funeral, coming up to the burial or cremation, you enter the cemetery. You are really just concentrating on getting through this, on being there for others, on keeping whatever it is together. You then do the interment, you do the, the, the ceremony. And as you leave the cemetery, you might have a little look at the landscaping, have a look at the, the journey. So to go out into, back into your life, the road, I think the design has to take that, that journey the wayfinding, what you're seeing on the way in, what can really help with that grieving process. You then fast forward a week, a month, a year, a couple of years. Again, what are you experiencing? The beauty of cemeteries is it is a safe place to grieve, to feel whatever you are feeling because no one's going to come up and think it's weird if you're crying in a cemetery. So these are that lovely places for the living. It is a place for contemplation, well-being, mental health, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm really interested in the sensory gardens. I'm interested in the experience. I, I think we have a huge role to play in, in, in mental health and well-being. You put that very beautifully, Deb. Um, now, another thing, I guess, um, stemming on from um, some of that discussion is around the cultural backgrounds. And we, we did touch on this briefly earlier on, but how does the trust respond to the various different cultural backgrounds in our society when it comes to the burial rites and traditions? Oh, we, we work very closely. We, we, we listen. We listen. We, um, we cater for that. So if I could perhaps refer you to the new area at, 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 at Faulkner or, or Northern Memorial Park where we've got a very large Muslim section now, we would have to understand that it is very important for there to be large attendances at the grave site to, I don't have the technical term, but to wish the, to wish the well. So if you've got a thousand mourners to, so you can imagine where's the car parking, where's the, the for, for Muslim burials, there needs to be a very large area around the grave site for mourners to wish going up to the, to the, the, the their next journey it would be very important for us to understand that the graves must be facing mecca they must so so we, we we talk to the imams we talk to the community when we do the original and the initial design what would your preferences be how can we respect you will also know that or perhaps you don't know that the um imams that they they will actually buy the graves and then make sure and, and then and then the families purchase from them and that ensures that perhaps there is a little more equity and affordability issues looked at it also um, looks at future planning that they know that there will be enough grave stock for their um, people so it is quite interesting obviously with Chinese communities you will have a look at the feng shui so I think it is in all humility that we absolutely ascribe to the principles of engagement. If you are affected by a decision we make, we will involve you in the process. And that's the beauty of our, of our role. We don't have to get it done tomorrow. We listen, we plan, we hopefully can change as 
as wishes and 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 um, more as change. The Mediterranean, so the, the Orthodox Greeks, so the the, the Catholics, the, the Italians, really love mausolea. Our mausolea are magnificent. We've just opened Keilor, and we're about to open a new development at Faulkner. We've got waiting lists for those. We sell off the plan. This is beautiful. Will that be generation two, generation three, when you've got a price point of twenty-five to $75,000? So it's a good industry to be in. Oh, well, a good take on it, Deb. James, just circling back, the architecture of grief, do you have any comments on that as well in terms of the designs that you've looked at that you think are inspirational or it's almost like the, the the architectural place of grief or something like that any thoughts well it, it, there's almost a link between those two most recent questions actually because it, it will depend on cultural background as well it, it's really interesting to see how some people will find peace and repose in, in nature whereas other cultures will want to visit a mausoleum and, and see that people uh, w perhaps within within a community setting in, in a more formal environment. So I think it does vary, but I agree with, with Deb, you know, it, it's all about um, the experience from the, the moment of interment, um, the moment of reflection, and then perhaps in the coming months and years, revisiting that place, thinking of the past and, and feeling a, a sense of peace and acceptance and absolutely that's at the forefront of our mind in design you know there's a more general principle about biophilia and 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 the, the good that that does to us as humans to be within nature so we we take all of those principles seriously the, the those aspects of culture we've talked about but also the importance of those landscapes as, as elements of the grieving and the healing process and cemeteries for tourism i mean it sounds a bit um tacky um, I know there's ghost tours and things like that, but is there an opportunity for more historical um, historical um, tours? I, just just as an aside, at the Queenscliff uh, Cemetery, part of the Geelong Cemetery Trust, they have um, people act. Um, they have tours, and you walk along, and there's different people pop up, and they represent someone who was in that grave, and they tell their life story. And then you move on to the next person, and um, it's completely fascinating. Any thoughts about that? Peter, I could not have asked for a better question. Thank you so much. So the visitor economy, tourism, we would not be holding um, ghost tours, just saying, and we wouldn't be holding trash and treasure markets. But we're just about to launch early next year our History and Heritage Hub, a digital experience where people's stories come to life if you will so we're just we're working on this and it's it, it's an app and it's it's very very exciting i think we need to capitalize on the the curiosity and the interest that the community has and the sense of discovery so this will then allow you to one walk the we've got a number of walks a number so we're piloting it at, at faulkner and i think our premise for this one is extraordinary stories but they're not, uh, everyone has a story. So it's not necessarily we've gone for the famous names you would know, but behind each one of these will, will, will be this sense of discovery. So I, I believe that we need to make the cemeteries come alive, if you will. I think Geelong Cemeteries Trust do this really, really well. I know Springvale does too. So I think to capitalise on, on the the experience of understanding people's lives, I think is, is fantastic. I think, James, you mentioned that, you know, when you go along, you want to stroll through the cemetery. Well, why wouldn't you? Um, I, I think that's, that, that, that's got a great future, but I will not be party to any sort of ghoulishness because I'm trying to rebrand the cemetery as a park as a community space, as a space of contemplation. So anything that would go along there, I would love opera in the park. I would love to see, you know, so I mean, just this is a, a passion of mine. Just at the moment, I'm concentrating on getting the phones answered, but just give me a few years and uh, 
I, I would love to see the visitor experience extend to our wonderful cemeteries across Victoria. We look forward to chatting to you in a few years then, Deb, and just seeing, I guess, how things have changed over the next, you know, even five, ten years. Thanks for the support from Ratio Consultants who provide high-quality, multidisciplinary support services across all aspects of planning, transport, economic assessment and urban design. One of Australia's leading planning-related consultants for over 30 years with offices in Melbourne and Geelong. See our website for details. One of the other things, and probably this is a question for James, is looking at planning policy. So just bringing this back to, um, you know, the built environment and our industry. Are there any changes that you'd like to see to planning policy or that you think need to happen to our regulations as they affect cemeteries? The, the planning policies don't actually say much about cemeteries at the moment. I think we have a, a general public use zone categorisation that provides for cemeteries and crematoria, which is fantastic because it gives us a degree of freedom in relation to that. But I would like to see a bit more consideration to the future strategic planning for cemeteries uh, and their ongoing use over time. I don't know quite what that looks like yet because this is very early days for me, but it, it's clearly a gap that I've observed from my very early, earliest days with the organisation. You know, we plan for schools, we plan for open space. I'd like to consider how we plan for cemeteries and crematoria, you know, ideally within the open space network as a component of that network. In my early days, I'm seeing this very much as a crucial part of our infrastructure, if not looking forward our green infrastructure. So let's start to think about it like that. Think about how we can integrate thinking of, of cemeteries in relation to concepts of open space and waterway networks and, and dealing with climate change and, and the greenhouse effect, uh, sorry, the, um, the heat island effect. I, I think we've, we need to think very broadly about the services that cemeteries provide. Uh, there, there is, um, James and Deb, there is this technology um, where people can have virtual lives once they've died and, um, and you know, they can live on in different ways uh, um, virtually. Um, and that's a contrast to the physical presence of memorialising is... I mean, it may sound a, a, tight, a, a silly question, but could cemeteries in the future be obsolete or even banned for environmental reasons? I mean, I know that's a bit extreme, but we live in a pretty crazy world. So any thoughts about those things? And also the virtual living on, is the trust involved in that? So there's about five questions for you both there. Yeah, I can answer those five questions. Um, but Melbourne University in their future cemetery um, research, we're in year three of this, um, and if anyone listening, Death Tech team at Melbourne University have published some really interesting data about community sentiment um, about this. So, yes, so you walk past the, the, the grave and there's a hologram of me <laughs> and there's my last 10 years of Facebook posts, et cetera, et cetera. So um, the, the community weren't too keen on that, but, you know, I don't take it personally. Um, the idea of doing away with cemeteries completely because of a virtual premise, it's still what do you do with the bodies and the remains? I haven't, no one, I, I'm not aware of any, of any work with that, but the idea of um, virtual memorialisation is absolutely on the cards. Um, why do you need a cemetery to dispose of the dead? Like, couldn't, yeah, I, I, I don't quite know. I understand that we would locate for crematoria, but why couldn't we open it up? So cremated remains is, is no issue. I mean, you can certainly have them anywhere. Um, so imagine, your favourite walking track or running track. So maybe you might want to put your little cremated remains in a tree there or under the bench that you used to sit at. So I see there's competition, if you will, um, for, for, for that that is meaningful for the families. Burials is a little more complex, so I don't actually have the, the answer to that. One of my observations working in local government was that there's a lot of... A, a, a lot of community push for 
memorialization of their loved ones in public spaces along roadsides in parks and the like which i i fully understand and and perhaps it's around an aversion to attending cemeteries my concern with that is that it, it does solemnize public parks for example and you know i, th I think there is a place for cemeteries in 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 being a location for, for sharing memory and for allowing people to be perhaps sad or go through the grieving process. So I'd like to you know, explore how we as a community can reinvent perceptions about cemeteries and perhaps see them as important places for those really meaningful moments in our lives. And I suppose, James, they're, they're a unifying, they can be a unifying symbol for our society that the, and there's also of course there's economies of scale but that that unifying we as schools unify us because you know we all went to a certain school and then there's cemeteries are also part of that unifying element in society am i being a bit silly oh not at all i agree I, when you were talking about that i was thinking of the shrine for example mm. it's there for a, a a single purpose and that is to remember those that have passed as a result of war so it may be that the cemetery just takes on a different form. Maybe it's just a, a beautiful pathway with some plaques along the path from reminding us of people that have been here before us. Maybe we don't need as much real estate occupied by graves and, and walls and the like. Um, but I think there's a, an ongoing role, notwithstanding our digital world. Now we're coming to the end of the podcast now. A question that we quite often ask our guests is around um, if you had an extended time off to study, is there a particular research project that you would like to explore? It doesn't necessarily have to be related to cemeteries, but um, yeah, interested to hear both of your thoughts on that. Hmm. You go first, I'm thinking, James. <laughs> well, I, I've just become fascinated by cemeteries, to be perfectly honest. I would, I would really like to explore what the future holds for cemeteries. All these questions that we've been talking about today, what they can offer, what this interface between the material world and the digital world might look like, you know, how we can perhaps do some more work on that question of grief and, and the, the role of landscape in, in that process. I think we're becoming a lot more honest about the process of death now and about grief and about mental health. And I'd love to explore how we as a sector and we as cemeteries can contribute to that real conversation about life and death. Big stuff. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. I think I'm really fascinated by culture and its role in organisations. I think I'd like to have the time to really work with and, and, and understand what, what does culture mean, how, how, so it's not just, you run a company and it's not just about revenue, you run a company and, and it's not just about occupational health and safety. It really gets down to uh, people. And, and I'm kind of really interested in, in organization dynamics or culture as a, as a, a tool for leadership. So it'll be something to do with, with, with leadership, something to do with, um, with, 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 with coaching and, and understanding how you measure um, culture, what define culture. So I sort of feel a, a great need to know a little bit more because it's, it's currently my, 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 my guiding light and I'm, I'm learning a lot. But imagine just having the time to devote yourself totally. Although it's quite handy thinking about this and, 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 and taking on inputs and having a petri dish of your own organisation to test and try your theories, but do no harm. <laughs> and I, I always find graveyards, I, I, I always have the same question. I find them quite a meditative place, Deb and James and mm -hmm. Jess, and I always wonder what the dead would say to us. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the paths of glory the paths of glory lead but to the grave. That mm. uh, Whenever I go to a cemetery, I always come out wishing to be a better person um, because our time is brief. Any thoughts on my silly, <laughs> silly uh, thoughts? But Peter, I love that because it does give you pause. It, 
it's going to happen to all of us. So it's completely sensible to me that is that reflection, have I lived a good life? Could I have done more? Not, not in a dystopic way, but just in a, you know, busy life, produce, 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 deliver, 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 and you pop into the cemetery and you kind of go, really? This is so interesting. And I wonder what they were thinking. So I, I, I think that ev evocativeness of, of what a cemetery can do, pause, slow down, have a look, reflect, is exactly what I want people to feel when they come into one of our park lands. James, you're a, you're a cemetery junkie, sounds like me, but do you have similar thoughts? Oh, absolutely. All of the above, that uh, self-reflection, that putting in perspective, into perspective of the troubles of the day, it really is a place of, of meditation and, and deep contemplation. And um, I was just reflecting then that I have a similar experience in art galleries, actually, which is an interesting mm. juxtaposition. But they are, I, I do, that's why I take the time to visit them when I'm in places I'm not familiar with, even overseas, because I think you learn so much about the culture from just the way they deal with death and the way they respect those that have come before them. Oh, that reminds me of going to Liebskin's um, Holocaust, you know, cemetery, uh, you know, like it was just. I just cried and cried, and I, as I walked through the maze, I just thought, wow, this should never have happened. So it, it, it's the idea of living history, the idea of being in the moment that, that, that these places can, can give to you, which is why I think we must partner with the very best planners, the very best landscape designers, the very best architects, to not just give maximum yield and whack a grave in, but to actually build beautiful places, contemplative places. Oh, a bit excited now. So important for our future as well. So I'm mm. glad we've got you on the case, Deb. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> now, um, just to finish up, question again that we ask all of our guests how do you refresh and relax it sounds like you get obviously quite a lot of um in particular you James getting your family history um nerd on which I think you and Pete obviously um share that uh, share that passion is there That's other things that you um, <laughs> are there other things that you like to do outside of your work well of course we're in the COVID aren't we so what I like to do is I like to swim and I like to play golf and I like to cook. So what I'm and entertain. So what I'm doing at the moment is um, cooking <laughs> for my beautiful husband and me. Um, I, I find that the whole creativity of planning a menu, of 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 shopping. I've got a beautiful garden at my home, and I feel very accomplished when I go out and you know pick tonight's dinner from there. So. I do believe in self-care. I do believe, particularly I'm dealing with families of grief, death and dying every day. It is very important for me to be able to regroup. So I live in, in research near Eltham. I have a beautiful native garden. So I try to get out as much as I can. I try to put my love into my food. And um, yeah, and I read, read trashy novels. I love them. Thank you. James. Over to me. Um, I, well, when we're not in a COVID situation, I, I've, I've been a lawn bowls player for almost 20 years. And you've just made me reflect on one of the things that grabbed me about lawn bowls from the outset was the intergenerational aspect of it. In, in one of my very first seasons, I remember talking to my teammates and, and one of them was talking to me about his VCE subjects and the other was talking to me about his uh, where on earth could you have this playing a sport? I fell in love with it. Um, busy with a couple of gorgeous stepkids who are both in primary school, um, painting, running around with them, and gardening, which keeps me sane during the COVID. 
Well, that's, that's, that's a lot, both of you. Um, now we move to Podcast Extra or Culture Corner, something you've read, seen, watched, listened to, experienced that might be of interest to our listeners. Uh, maybe Deb first. Oh. Take James first. On to you, James. I, I, have, I have been absolutely absorbed by a documentary series on Apple Plus called 1971. It is focused on the music of that year, which is probably my favourite era of, of pop and rock music. I didn't realise so much of the music I love was from that one year. But it intertwines all of the music with just the tumultuous things that were happening in the world at that time around Vietnam and and civil rights and just extraordinary things that were happening. And it's it's so raw and rugged and frightening. And it just puts everything that we're going through at the moment in perspective uh, with an amazing soundtrack. So it sounds strange to be listening to that sort of and watching that sort of thing at the moment, but it kind of makes me feel we're going to be okay. We've been through these sort of crisis times before. How wonderful. Well, I think that I am so over Zoom, I'm so over um, tablets, etc., that I have been devoting myself to reading murder mystery novels, but like a proper book, and, and, and turning the pages. So get all the little chores done in the morning, um, make sure I've got some good coffee and cake, and just devoting myself to, to, to lying down in the afternoon and getting stuck into a good murder mystery Lots of forensics. I quite like forensics. Um, so I like to understand and I like to work it through. So I think that's perhaps because I, I don't want to deal with anything online. I'm, I'm not interested. I mean, I, you know, films, et cetera, et cetera. But that would require me to have screen time. So the old-fashioned lie on the couch with a cuppa and cake and, 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 and read, a, read a book, that's what I've been doing. You've described my perfect afternoon. Oh, well done, Jess. Now, now, now Jess, what, what have you been up to? What's your culture calling? Well, as of this morning, actually, because um, I'm on mat leave, I've uh, just completed my first loaf of sourdough, which has been um, a good 24-hour process to get to this point. Um, but it's delicious. I'm very, very proud of it. Um, it's. Uh, I'm not sure if anyone else um, on this podcast does make sourdough but it's its own community I've discovered through COVID and I've been planning on making this for a long time and I must say I, I did try um, a sort of uh, a cheating a cheating way of doing it earlier on in COVID but this this one is the real deal and um, yeah it's a real community there's a lot of groups online and you could spend days weeks months actually planning out a new loaf of bread but I definitely haven't spent that long doing it, but it's um, it's really, really rewarding and it's it's very methodical, I find. Um, lots of different steps. My my husband nearly, um, nearly fainted when he saw the instructions that I was following and couldn't believe that I was devoting so much time to this loaf of bread. But I can say it was worth it. I'm very proud of it. What about you, Pete? Well, Jess, as you know, I'm a very undisciplined person. So I've set myself a task of learning a poem a month. And um, I mean, I think I find poetry a great uh, refuge in this crazy world that we live in and um, just trying to get away from uh, mass media and things like that. So Jess, I've been learning, I've learned a poem. The first one is Break, Break, Break by Alfred Tennyson, Lord Alfred Tennyson. And it, it it's a bit apt for our discussion today because it, it has lines such as, um, but oh, for the touch of a vanished hand and the sound of a voice that is still. And there's other lines, but the tender grace of a day that is dead will never never come back to me. So I'm trying to ward off dementia, Jess, and learn a poem a month. And, uh, well, I hope, I hope you like that. It's beautiful. Well, I just find um, dead poetry and and you know it's it cuts through a lot of it goes straight to some emotions that are very uh, you know universal and um it's it's just been left behind i think so that's my little thing walking along the beach rambling you know reciting this thing over and over and over wrote like so i remember it and it's it's a it's very satisfying so i would urge all our listeners to get into poetry on you well, 
Well, thanks so much, Deb and James. It's been a wonderful um, uh, discussion today, and I've learned an awful lot. And it's it's a it's a it's a very fascinating subject. Thank you for being part of our little podcast. And Jess, thank you as always. Thank you. And we look forward to hopefully catching up with um, Deb and James again in a few years' time and hearing how Harkness is going and um, hearing about all the other advancements in this very fascinating industry. So thank you Thanks so much for the opportunity. We love talking cemeteries. So thank you, Jess and Peter. Thanks to you both and congratulations on the podcast. It's been an immense achievement. Thank you very much.